Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Well, before we continue further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, we uh, pause again to remember uh, that what we are hearing is not just information for us to study, but what we are seeking to do is hear you instruct us to hear the voice of Jesus as he calls us to be his church. So Lord, that's what we ask for, that you would um, help us to hear you, that you would reshape us and renew us, that we might be the people you have created us to be. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, uh, as I've already said, it is uh, really good to be back. I've been looking forward to this. People have asked, are you like wishing that you had another sabbatical? No, this was a really good sabbatical, but one that made me very eager to return. Um, I want to thank, I know many of you were praying for me over this time, and I, I really feel like I saw God answer prayers. One of the prayers that I had kind of from the outset was echoing the words of Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I really felt like God was teaching me a lot over these last uh, 13 weeks. Um, some things, you know, personal, were seeing things that I need to change, areas of sin, needing repentance. Uh, but also part of this, and this is kind of where we're going this morning was kind of a, a deeper awareness of what God's vision for his church is. Now, what, what his plan, what his purpose for the church, for congregations like Trinity and, and churches throughout the world is. And, and here's the conviction as I've been studying, I've been spending a lot of time in Isaiah and other places that I think just comes through the Bible really clearly. And that is that the hope for the world is in the church. That the world which needs hope, the place that can find the the, the salvation for the world is found in the church. Now, I don't know how that idea strikes you. Um, Perhaps it feels a bit improbable. Uh, Because if we are honest, this has not been a great however many decades for the church. There's a lot about the church that is frankly quite ugly right now. I mean, I don't think it would take that long if I said, think of examples that you know of, of people in religious power abusing that power. It would take you maybe half a second for you to think of something. It's, it's not been good. And, and here's the thing, if you look at actually our culture, you can see kind of a response to that. So um, in 1990, there was a survey of American, you know, you have a lot of religious surveys that where people kind of speak of their kind of religious affiliation, and at that time, around 85% identified themselves in some ways as Christian, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, whatever, you know, version. 
And, and of the remaining, a good portion of that were like different religions of the world, and less than 7% or so said, I don't identify with any particular faith. So about 6.5%, that's 1990. Fast forward to about a year ago when they did this same survey, and 25% said they didn't identify with any particular religion. There's sometimes in the news, it's been talking about the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N. N-O-N-E-S, like I, I don't identify with any faith tradition. Now, and what's interesting to me about this enormous shift, I mean, this is unheard of, is that most of the people who say I don't identify with the religious tradition um, still claim to have some faith in God of some sort. They're not, this is not a move towards atheism or agnosticism by and large. And also most of those people who, who make this claim have grown up actually in some sense in the church. Their parents identified as Christians. They attended church at least some of the time, which means to me that when people are identifying themselves as none, they're not saying that they're done with the idea of God. They're saying they're done with the idea of church. Now, why is that? There's not one cause, of course, it would be reductionistic. And, you know, maybe even you are one who would say, it's hard for me to identify with the religious tradition, but you're here with us this morning. And, and each person who, who makes that statement has a different story. And there are undoubtedly many causes. But, but my guess is that we could agree that at least part of what it points to is a failure on the part of the church. As I said, there has been an ugliness and, and it's not just the leaders, that that's maybe where our mind goes. My guess is many who have grown up in the church and have removed themselves, it's not primarily because of one leader, although that sometimes is the case. It's because sometimes it seems like no one in the church actually believes what they say they believe. Like, have you ever been in a situation or a church, or maybe you know of something like this, where these amazing truths are being spoken of that talk about hope and love, and yet there is not a smile, not an emotional response anywhere in the room? Or, or how often is it the case that what people say they believe on Sunday bears almost no resemblance to how they live on Monday? And on Monday, they reveal that their real hope is on hard work or progress or success or financial well-being. There is hypocrisy. And unless you think that I'm just kind of like pointing my finger and going, oh, those people, I, I see it in myself. Perhaps you, you, you feel as similarly. I, I think of how often does my life display that I don't actually believe that God answers prayer? Because if I did, wouldn't I be praying more? How often does my life and my anxiety show that I don't yet confidently place my hope in the promises of God? As I look at myself, I see a disturbing gap between what I say I believe and what my actions sometimes say I believe. I mean, the church has a problem with hypocrisy, and it's ugly. And yet, Jesus very clearly says that the hope 
for the world. This, this beautiful, messy, broken, corrupted, confused world, that the hope for the world is found in the church. It's what we see in the passage that was just read. These are familiar verses. Perhaps you've heard them before. They're part of a very familiar sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount really is Jesus' manifesto to his church. Even though there's a wide crowd, it says that he's looking at his disciples. And he's saying to the people of God, this is my vision for you. This is what I am bringing about. This is the kingdom I'm bringing. This is the people I'm bringing. This is what the church is supposed to be. That's, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a vision of where the church is supposed to go. And just a few minutes into the sermon, what does he say? He says, you, and he's speaking to his church. He's speaking to us. You, Trinity, you are the salt of the earth. You, my church, you are the light of the of the world. Now, when we hear these two terms, salt and light, what, what we're meant to understand from the outset is these are two incredibly precious, important things. Salt, of course, gives flavor to food, but, but in that day, even perhaps more importantly, when there was no refrigeration, salt was the only thing that would keep meal from, meat from spoiling. It was necessary for there to be sufficient food. And we understand the importance of light. If, if, I was, if we were here in the nighttime and suddenly all of these lights went out and it was just pitch black, how would we feel? There would be, a, you know, like maybe a bit of panic, a, a lostness, and not sure exactly where to go or what to do in that moment because light provides clarity. It even kind of affects our mood. It brings hope. Jesus says, you are the salt, you are the light. Notice he's not just saying, you, church, help contribute to the salt that the world has. You, church, are part of the light. No, that's not what he says. He says, you are the salt. You are the light. You're it. The world needs salt, the world needs light, the world needs hope, and it is found in you. He is saying this to every congregation that it is his, whether we're talking about early reign covenant church in Chengdu, China, or we're talking about our neighbor churches like the chapel, or we're talking about us. He is saying, this is your calling. The hope for the world comes through you. Now, that might sound like we're, we're kind of getting it wrong because you might say, hey, wait a second, doesn't the Bible say, no, the hope for the world is found in Jesus? And yes, yes, that is absolutely true. But what does Jesus say? This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to bring salvation. He says, I'm going to do it through my church. It's through the church that I'm going to draw people to myself. It's through the church that I'm going to bring healing and draw them back to God. It's through the church that the corrupted will be healed, that the bitter will forgive, that the sorrowful will find joy. The world desperately needs Jesus, and Jesus says, and the way the world will find Jesus is through you. You are the salt. You are the light. You are the hope for the world. Now, just think about that for a moment about what that means. 
That, that gives our calling as this church an enormous amount of dignity, doesn't it? What we do as the people of God, and, and I'm talking about everything. When, when you, on Monday, as, as someone who is seeking to follow Christ, go into your workplaces and seek to serve him in the way that you work, there is dignity to that. When, when we work in terms of loving each other and trying to get along with each other, even through conflict, there is dignity in that. When, when many of us are doing the, the hard work of Sunday morning, whether it's with nursery or whether it's with setup or anything, there is dignity in that because we are part of something that is absolutely crucial for the world because the hope of the world is found in the church. But there isn't just dignity, is there? There is, if we really hear what Jesus is saying, there is a tremendous weight of responsibility Yesterday, uh, I took our middle son, Daniel, out driving for the very first time. Do you remember that experience, not as a parent, but when you were as a kid, the first time you got behind the wheel? I remember just, there's this sense that I'm now driving, you know, a weapon. Like, you know, like, like there is something about this where if I don't do things right, I could seriously hurt myself or others or other people. There was just this, I better get this right. Now, of course, like, you know, for a typical teenager like me, six months later, and I was like, I could never get anything wrong. I can drive, you know, like, I was not responsible. But at first, I felt the weight of that responsibility. And do you feel the weight of the responsibility God has entrusted you with his mechanism for bringing hope to the world, for saving the world? You are the light, Jesus says. You are the salt. We should feel the fact that if we do not fulfill our calling, the world will suffer. So, so what does it mean for us as the church to fulfill our calling. Well, let's consider again these two metaphors. Jesus says, you are the salt. And then he immediately speaks about what, what's important. And, and what he basically says is that there's one thing the salt needs to do to be good salt, and that is just to be true to itself, to stay salty. If somehow it loses that one thing, it's useless. I mean, imagine if you have your salt shaker and you're having a meal and you shake some because it wasn't very flavorful and you eat it and you notice no difference, so you shake some some more and you still notice no difference. What good is that? You're getting like increase in blood pressure but no increase in flavor. I mean, what do you do with that? You, you just throw it away and that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, you know, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. And the point is, salt's key responsibility, to put it that way, is to remain true to itself, to be what it is. And Jesus is saying, and that's true for you. Your calling is to be what you are is to remain distinctively salty. What are we? We are the people of God. We are to remain distinctly of Christ. You know, in the last, I think maybe it's a few centuries, I think the church has felt that to be able to love the world well, we need to make it easier to become a part of us. So, so we have basically, in different ways, said, you know, Come and join us. It's not going to be that different from the way things are for you already. 
so we do that with church structures. We have, you know, a barista maybe out front in Starbucks, and we make churches look more like malls. We do that with a way that we have our services where we're trying to make them more entertaining and, and inspirational. We do that even with what we tell people need to, you don't have to actually change your behavior that much or change what you have to think that much. It's just your life plus Jesus. Why would anyone show up for that? If we're saying there's no difference, what's the value? No, Jesus says, if you're going to be salt of the world, here's what it means. You need to let me make you as strange as I am. That's our calling, to be distinctive, to be strange. Like, so strange that in a day where people are cynical about everything, we admire and are filled with awe at God. And in in a day where there just seems to be nothing but despair, we have a confidence in our hope. That's how strange. So strange that we are committed to relationships with those who are different from us, even though it makes us feel awkward and uncomfortable. And even though sometimes it also means conflict that we have to do the messy work of working through. So strange that we are committed to treating our bodies with dignity and allowing God to instruct us how to use them because they are his, not ours. So strange that we take Jesus at his word when he says it is better to give than to receive, and so we seek to give our lives in service to the world. You know, there is... Um, a place where Paul speaks of one aspect of a healthy church, and it says that's, you know, like a healthy church, if, if someone steps in, and whether it's on a Sunday morning or becomes, you know, like just joins kind of part of the congregation, at a certain point, they step back and say, surely God is among you. What do you think would bring that about? A barista? a really entertaining Sunday service? Of course not. What will bring that about is if a congregation is so filled with Jesus, where Jesus is so present, where the congregation is so strange that others cannot help but take notice. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Of course, he goes on to also say, You are the light of the world. And notice, and this is something that's been true throughout, but it's kind of even clearer here, that when he's speaking, he's not just speaking individually, like you are all like little salt pieces or you are all little lights. Notice the metaphor that he uses right after when he says you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's not changing the topic here. In in that day, you didn't have electricity. And so dark was really dark. And, and if you are in a rural area, there's not a light to see. But if you are somewhere near a city, especially if that city is set on a hill, then miles away you see this place where there are fires and torches. That light is bright. And, and what Jesus is pointing out is, well, yes, we can speak of ourselves individually as lights. In, a, in an even deeper sense, as a community, we are a light to the world. Because here's the thing, you know, it's not that hard as individuals to be nice. 
I mean, in suburbia, we've kind of perfected that. We learn how to be nice people. And so it's, it's, it's harder to kind of show the light of Christ just as individuals. But, but one thing we haven't figured out is how to truly do community. That's something that's very difficult to fake. It's very difficult to fake relationships that go deep and are truly committed to each other. It's, it's difficult to fake when there is real forgiveness, when there is real sacrificial service, when, when a community actually is family to each other. Even our families throughout the world don't know how to be family to each other. That is a light, Jesus says. And, and when he identifies that, that we are called to be a light, well, it's, you know, if, if the purpose of a salt is to be salty, for light to fill its calling, it needs to be visible. And, and that's what Jesus says in his instruction. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To hear the, the, the mission behind what Jesus is saying there. He's saying that, that we should be so filled with Christ in, in such a visible way that when people encounter us, whether as individuals or especially as a community, it's not just they say, hey, that's a pretty good church. But they actually say, wow, God is real. And, and Jesus says it's not just enough to be a light. You need to be a light on a stand. It's not just enough to be a city. You need to be a city set on the hill. In other words, our calling is not just to be distinctive, but also to be connected, to be a part of the world around us to be seeking to love it and caring for it rather than removing ourselves and, and hiding. Because what good is light when it's hidden? If you think about it, Jesus already here is anticipating the two chief temptations that the church will face for the next however many millennia until he returns. On one hand, there's what we might say the tendency to liberalism. That is, to, to kind of shave off some of the rough edges, to compromise so that we can be more like the world. The other temptation is fundamentalism. To remove ourselves, to just kind of look judgmentally on the world and watch it as it burns and say, well, at least we're okay. Now, if you think about it, both of those are safe. If you're like the world, that's great. If you're removed from the world, they're not going to criticize you, but Jesus doesn't call us to be safe. He calls us to be salt and light. He calls us to be beautiful for the sake of the world. That, that's another way of, of putting what I think summarizes this passage, that Jesus says to you, his people, that your calling as a church is to be a beautiful church for the good of the world. Beautiful because Jesus is beautiful and his love is beautiful and his righteousness is beautiful. So we are called similarly to be salt, to be beautiful, but not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. Now again, I, I realize this is probably hard for us. At least it is hard for me sometimes to believe that this could be the case because if we're honest, the church, even on its best day, can just seem so ordinary. 
But if you study the scriptures again and again, here's what you see. God does amazing things through ordinary things. Our world needs to know God. It needs to be guided by his wisdom. It needs to experience his love. And that means it needs Jesus. And Jesus says, and here's how the world is going to find me through you. You, Trinity, we are called to be a beautiful church for the sake of the world. I mean, isn't that kind of an exciting idea? It is for me. Like, if you've been talking with me in the last few months, you know I can't stop talking about this because it's just something that I found such a compelling calling. But, of course, it's not just enough to be talking about it or to be thinking about it. And honestly, it's not even just enough to be wanting it or even to say, let's try to do that. Because if we listen carefully, Jesus' sermon isn't done. And, and when he keeps on going, he basically says in so many different ways, you and I cannot do this on our own through just bare-knuckling it and sheer willpower. And in, in the next chapter or so, Jesus basically says, hey, when I'm talking about you, you being salt, surface-level obedience is not what I'm talking about. Because we can do that. We can do something where we're checking off some boxes. I haven't murdered. I haven't slept with anyone. I haven't lied. Jesus is like, no, you misunderstand. I want you actually to, from the very core of your being, respect other people. I want you from the very core of your being to be people with truthfulness, to love not just your friends, but your enemies. It, it goes down deep. And when we start thinking about light, like how can I look the right way for the people around us, Jesus says, no, you're misunderstanding me again. Don't do your good works just so other people can see them. I want this to go down deep so that when no one sees except God, even there it is true. Because the world doesn't need any more hypocrisy. We've got plenty of that. The world doesn't need spin doctors and PR machines. We know what that's like. What we need is true goodness. What we need is true beauty. And the reality is you and I aren't going to be able to manufacture that, are we? And of course we're not. If someone comes in and is able to say, surely God is here, the only way that will happen is not through us working hard. It's through a work of God. The only way it will happen is if, if God chooses to so fill us with the Spirit and make us Christ-like that people go, this clearly can't be anything they've done. There's got to be something else to explain this. And that's why as Jesus kind of brings his sermon to conclusion, in fact, after he says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, seek to be that beautiful church, what does he say just a few verses later? He says, ask. Ask. Ask that God would bring this about, that he would make you the salt and light. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, seek to be changed. Seek to be the beautiful church that I have called you to be. Knock, that is, come to me and, and ask for an open door and it will be opened to you. That, I think, is what Jesus is talking about in that famous passage. Ask, seek, knock. And here's why we can do that with confidence, Jesus says, because your Father loves you. 
because your Father wants to give you these good things. In fact, we can know with even greater confidence, can't we, because he's already done the single hardest thing to bring this about. He gave his son, his son laid down his life. His beautiful son gave everything so that he could create a church. He gave everything so that you and I could be rescued and forgiven and experience his love and be filled with the Spirit. He already gave everything to bring this about. Do you not think that if we ask for him to finish it, he will not answer it? Ask. We, we know that we're in a, I think, at least America, maybe throughout the world, but at least America, we're in a tough time right now. I mean, news just seems so dark. Maybe you're feeling exhausted by it like I am. And if you listen to what's actually going on and you try to hear beneath, here's what I think you hear. I know this is what I think I hear. I hear fear. I fear, I hear confusion and despair and I hear lostness. Because all the things that I think gave people a sense of direction and optimism, the sense of progress, technology, the greatness of the economy, even the belief in government, all of those feel like they have just collapsed and people don't know where to go and what they possibly can hope in. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if God were to answer these prayers and in this church, make it so obvious that Jesus is present. So clear that as we look, we realize God is doing something. Can you imagine what it would be like, not just for us, because that would be an encouragement to us, but if, if people around us were able to take notice, and even though they look everywhere else and can't find anything, they say, there, there is something that is real, and that is good, and I want to know more about that. Can you imagine any greater gift to give to the world than that? Jesus says, ask. Please ask with me, be asking with me that God would make us into the beautiful church he has called us to be. I want to take a moment even now to respond in prayer, and maybe part of that response is a response of confession as we acknowledge our own hypocrisy, but also an acknowledgement of our weakness as we pray with longing, Lord, would you please make us into the salt, into the light, into the beautiful church that this world needs? Would you join with me in silent prayer, and then I will lead us in prayer in just a moment's time.
Father, you see us, you know, um, you know our weakness. We acknowledge our sin before you with grief. And Father, we, we give you thanks that you are a God who forgives, that we are forgiven through Christ. And we give you thanks that you choose again and again to work through very ordinary means to show your extraordinary glory. Father, I ask that you would fill us with a holy discontent, that you would fill us with a longing to see your glory shine through this church, that you would lead us to turn to you in prayer, that your spirit would fill us and change us and enable us to truly bring good to the world by reflecting your glory, that that many would come to know Christ and that we, your people, would, would be more and more changed by him. Lord, we, we pray not by sight because it's hard for us to imagine sometimes what that would look like, but because you tell us that you love us and that you love to answer our prayers. And so we ask this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear um, this glorious reminder from the Psalms. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we are made. He remembers that we are dust. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Brothers and sisters, God has remembered us in our sinfulness and brokenness. And through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God.